The manufacturer of the powerful painkiller OxyContin will plead guilty to three federal criminal charges. This headline was plastered on newspapers, web articles, and televisions across the country on October 21st. Welcome to the Trip Sitters Podcast. I'm your host, Brandy Stevens, and I'm here with Rose Webb. Pleasure to be here, and we are talking about a subject that I hold very close to my heart. I've seen opioid addiction firsthand, and I think it's unimaginable and unthinkable what those drugs can do to people that you love. And that's exactly where I want to start this conversation. Before we get too far into the legal side of the opioid epidemic, it's important to understand who are the people behind the statistics, how they got there, and how opioid addiction has affected their lives. That's why our reporter, Jordan Lewis, sat down with Zach Kendi, who was addicted to opioids for eight to nine years. Jordan, tell us a little bit about it. You know, Brandy, Zach has been my friend for about six months now, and I knew he used to suffer from serious drug addiction, but I never knew how serious the problem was until this interview. Zach was addicted to the popular painkiller oxycodone, commonly sold as oxycotton, for most of his teen years. I really started to do drugs when I was like 12 or 13, so it was after my school shooting. I had gotten so far away from my values, so far away from like who I actually was that I started lying, stealing, manipulating people, um, pretty much like anything that I could do to get more drugs, I did. I had sex with people that I probably definitely shouldn't have for drugs. So I kicked out of my dad's house, my mom's house, and my grandparents' house. Um, So I was just constantly like couch surfing and on the streets and in my car and wherever I could get a place to stay and, and, and get drugs. I overdosed 13 times, so I was very much like always just in and out of the hospital. It ended me on just like constantly having seizures, literally could not open my eyes without the room spinning, like constantly throwing up, like how to be put on a ventilator. It was awful. Some was accidental, some was um, on purpose. Overdosing was either because I just had heightened emotions and I didn't know how to deal with them. And I was like, you know what? Like, let me just take a bunch of pills. Like, it made me feel better. And if I die in the process, that's fine with me. That's absolutely heartbreaking. And you know, Rose, we can hear the story a million times, but we still have to realize that what Zach went through is unimaginable for those of us who have not suffered from the addiction particularly from an addiction as powerful as opioids. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, as you know, I lost someone from addiction as well, and Zach's sort of list of things that happened is what happened to my friend, and she didn't even make it out. So the saddest part of Zach's story is that it's not an uncommon one, and oftentimes the problem goes untreated and unsolved. And to kind of paint that broader picture, I invited reporter Juan Carlos Ramirez to help us understand what the opioid crisis looks like in terms of numbers in America. Thank you for joining us, Juan. It's a pleasure to be here. One thing you guys mentioned is that Zach's story is not an uncommon one, and that couldn't be more true. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, over 10 million people misused their prescription opioids in 2018, 
and 2 million had an opioid use disorder. And while Zach has thankfully recovered from his addiction, not all of those cases turned out as lucky. That same year, over 47,000 people died from overdosing on an opioid, 40% of which included a prescription. On a day-to-day scale, we're looking at around 130 people dying of opioid overdoses every single day in America. Wow, I think those numbers really come alive when we talk about stories like Zach's experience. It wasn't just some rare tragedy. Millions of people in America have lived through exactly what Zach was talking about. And it's a ripple effect, you know. It doesn't just affect the addict. It affects your family and friends and those that want to see you get better. And I think that goes for addicts on any drug. But opioids are certainly not like any other street drug. And the particular opioid that Zach took, oxycodone, is a prescription drug. And I think it's important to understand how Zach was able to get these drugs in order to understand the context of this epidemic as a whole. You have like one minor symptom and you can like play it up to be, you know, a little bit bigger than it is. And I'll be like, oh, here, here's some codeine. It's, it's real easy. One of the things I did was lie about cancer. And I literally went to this doctor in Texas that I did not know. Um, it was like, yeah, I've been prescribed Oxy or whatever, but like, I can't find them. I left that at home. He fucking prescribed me Oxy. He didn't even like check into anything. He was like, oh, okay, you have cancer. Like, okay, yeah, like, yeah. And then I got it. Honestly, it was way too easy. Like way too easy. Honestly, it's so scary how easily he was able to get drugs with such a high potential for abuse and addiction. Yeah, but that's just another way Zach's experience is really just a microcosm of the opioid epidemic as a whole. Like, Juan mentioned earlier that 40% of overdose deaths in 2018 involved a prescription, and that's certainly something that makes the opioid crisis unique. You know, unlike other street drugs, Americans first got hooked on opioids through prescriptions, through doctors. And to explain a little bit more about how opioids in America have become a crisis, I interviewed Dr. Stephen Ullman, who is the chair of the Department of Health Administration and Policy at the University of Miami. It's interesting. It was essentially an unintended consequence of something that um, the healthcare system was trying to get a handle on. So the Joint Commission for Accreditation on Healthcare Facilities, JCO, back a number of years ago said, we've got a problem. The people are in hospital systems, in their hospital beds, dealing with a lot of pain, a lot of chronic pain, acute pain, and pain management. And that hospitals are not apparently getting this pain under control, and the physicians who serve those patients are not getting that under control. So we, the Joint Commission for Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, said we will now use this as one of the variables to determine whether a healthcare system, hospital system, uh, is worthy of accreditation or reaccreditation. Cool, right thing to do. Uh, you want to control pain. So the pharmaceutical company said, uh, look, at, there's an issue here in the hospital systems. We can start developing some pharmaceuticals, including opioids, that deal with pain. And these pharmaceuticals did indeed start controlling pain. The only problem is that in terms of then the use of these is that we started seeing an evolution from the area of acute pain management to utilizing these for chronic pain. And that is not what the purpose of the opioids are. The opioids are there to, in the very short run, after some injury, after a surgical procedure where you're needing to control the pain for a short period of time to use the pharmaceuticals 
unfortunately, people started having troubles getting off of those pharmaceuticals. Um, and this is where some of the addiction started occurring with respect to pharmaceutical prescription drugs. So I get what Dr. Ullman is saying about how wrongly prescribing opioids for chronic or long-term pain greatly increases the addiction rate of the drug. But I feel like that explanation is missing something. Why do doctors prescribe opioids for chronic pain? And what factors lead to the kind of situation where we see with Zach, where you can walk into a doctor's office, lie to them, and get opioids? Well, I think those are great questions, Brandy, and I was curious about those too, and I think Dr. Emma Dean describes it best. Uh, I also interviewed her. She's an assistant professor of health management and policy at the University of Miami, and we tried to fill in some of the gaps and connect the role of pharmaceutical companies to the crisis that we're seeing unfold today. You know, you mentioned the pharma industry and their role in this. Uh, so the one that you hear about most in lawsuits and in the news is Purdue Pharmaceuticals, which produced OxyContin. And they used, you know, the sort of marketing techniques that were used in general in pharma, but they applied them to opioids. Those marketing techniques really hadn't been used in opioids before. For instance, some of the things they did, they would market directly to physicians and not just to pain specialists, uh, but also actually directly to primary care docs. So what we saw is then more prescribing amongst primary care doctors than have been used in the past. Uh, in addition to marketing directly to, to physicians, they did a hard push in terms of their sales force. So what they did was they actually tracked doctors by prescribing um, volume and kind of would target the high volume doctors. That can mean two things. One, those are the doctors who see the most pain patients. So a logical doctor for you to target. Or it could be the ones who are you know, least discriminatory about prescribing opioids. So you're going to get both of those types of doctors. And they would basically reward Salesforce representatives quite a lot of money for targeting those doctors. And as a result, even when we saw these sort of pill mill things, the Salesforce representatives could be making a ton of money off those doctors. So there's little to no incentive for them to report uh, the doctors. In fact, almost the opposite, right? So they're disincentivized from reporting. Uh, one of the other things, though, that I think is kind of underreported on was there were what we call key opinion leaders or physicians who were well-known in pain management who were pushing uh, for more use of opioids and saying, you know, pain is this really undermanaged condition. We need to treat it like the fifth vital sign. Uh, opioids aren't as addictive as we thought. And, you know, one of the studies they cited, they were looking at just uh, people who had received opioids in a hospital setting. And so only 1% of those patients ended up being addicted. So that was actually widely applied to the general population, which we all know now is just not true. Those numbers are not accurate. Looking at all that information, you can kind of understand the shared responsibility between pharmaceutical companies and doctors in creating the opioid epidemic. And I think that brings us full circle all the way back to why we're talking about this in the first place. Purdue Pharma is going to plead guilty to criminal charges in the first-of-its-kind lawsuit involving the opioid crisis. So to help explain the significance of this, I invited reporter Jesse Locke to come in and speak with us. Hi, Jesse. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So specifically, Purdue Pharma reached a settlement where they agreed to plead guilty to three counts of criminal charges, including conspiracy to defraud the United States and violating federal anti-kickback laws. One thing you mentioned is that this lawsuit was the first of its kind in the response to the opioid epidemic. And the reason for this is twofold. One is just the huge consequences this lawsuit has. So oftentimes when huge billion dollar companies get sued, you hear a lot of talk about any 
penalty or fine they get just being like a slap on the wrist because of how much money they have. But no one could say that this consequence is just a slap in the wrist. To understand the full extent of the consequences of this lawsuit, just listen to what the Department of Justice has to say. The agreed resolution, if approved by the court, will require that the company be dissolved and no longer exist in its present form. It would require that the Sacklers must relinquish all ownership and control of the company or of any of its successors, and the company's assets would be transferred to a new public benefit company, or PBC, owned by a trust for the benefit of the American public. So we're looking at Purdue Pharma having to completely dissolve, pretty much cease to exist as we know it. And one of the reasons the punishment is harsher than what we've seen in previous cases is because Purdue was actually charged with criminal violations and not just civil, which was the norm before. So as you may suspect, criminal charges will generate much harsher punishments. And on top of all this, the Department of Justice also reached a separate $225 million civil settlement with the former owners of Purdue Pharma, the Sackler family. But that doesn't release the Sacklers and other officials in the company from criminal liability. And in fact, there's an ongoing criminal investigation against them as we speak, meaning that potentially they could have to face jail time. This is huge. But while it's extremely important to, you know, hold these people responsible for their role in creating this epidemic in America, we also have to acknowledge that lawsuits aren't, you know, going to be what solves the crisis. We have to work towards resolutions that help people in communities as well as punishing the key players that perpetuate the problem. And I think you're absolutely right. The overprescribing and misprescribing of opioids is what got us here in the first place. But since then, stricter regulations have been put into place and doctors and patients now have a clear understanding of the addictiveness of opioids. So now what do we do? To answer that question, I think we have to look back at Zach's case. I just continued doing what I was doing and it wasn't until October 17th of 2019 that I was like, I cannot fucking do this anymore. Um, and I was supposed to die that day. Like I had a plan to kill myself that day. So I finally like, got honest with myself and then I told other people and then I was like, oh, I don't know anything else to do but go back into the rooms of AA and NA. And so that's what I did. And my parents, my grandparents, and some other people were like, you need to go to rehab. So we found a rehab center in Georgia. And it took me like another month to get into that. But I was still going to like NA. Had I not have my grandparents, honestly, because they help very much financially. Um, I'm not sure I would have ever gone to rehab or a lot of the therapy that I've gone through at any point in my life. That's a hard resource to get access to if you don't have the proper funds, if you don't have insurance. Recovery has given me a life that I never imagined was possible. I went from this kid who just stole and lied and manipulated and who like wanted to die, hated themselves, um, to like this person who I don't wake up every day wanting to die anymore. 
and like I can deal with with life's problems effectively. I'm just I'm so freaking happy and, and life is nice. Life is life is good. I'm an actual like functioning honest member of society and it's fantastic. I think at this point in the epidemic, we have to look at treating this crisis as treating individuals. Resolving this epidemic ultimately involves expanding access to programs that help Zach and making sure that they have adequate resources and funding because you shouldn't have to be rich or well off to be able to get help. I 100% agree with you. And I think on a personal level, we can all try to end the stigma around addiction so that people like Zach are more likely to ask for help and seek help sooner. And most importantly, we can check our judgments at the door and try to have more empathy and understanding for people going through addiction. And I really hope sharing Zach's story allows more people to do just that. But that's all for us today. Rose, again, thank you for joining me. Your insight was invaluable. And thank you so much for having me. A big thank you to all the other guests and interviews on our podcast today. And a special, special thanks to Zach Kindy for sharing his story with us. And just a reminder, if you are currently struggling with opioid addiction or know someone who is, the Opiate Hotline is 877-634-0172. Again, that's 877-634-0172. This will connect you directly to the Recovery Village that can provide you with free and confidential opioid addiction help. Thank you all for listening.